welcome to the Common Good Podcast, the podcast that showcases the very best of Glasgow Caledonian University and how the institution, its staff and its research benefits people and communities, both at home and overseas. My name is Craig Telfer and my guest at this time is Dr. Elaine Rich, a senior lecturer in marketing at GCU, to talk about her new book, New Perspectives in Critical Marketing and Consumer Society and how it ties in with the university's mission. Elaine, it is brilliant to have you on the show. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for asking me. No, it's great. This this book sounds absolutely fantastic. And I really like how it, it does. We've read the abstract and it really does tie in with the mission for the common good. So what is the book about? The book is about the way in which society works and the way in which markets work as well. And so it's, it's underpinned by sustainability and the sustainable development goals. And what it seeks to do is to propose new ways of economies that are more sustainable through addressing the ills of current market structures and seeking ways in which society can contribute to more equality through sustainability but also through more diversity as well so it's about accepting diversity and the nuances of who it is that contribute to that wider society. Excellent. That sounds very interesting. There's a lot of stuff you've just said there that I want to touch on, but I suppose we'll start by looking at the current system, the current markets and the current economies. What are they? How are they set up and why aren't they sustainable or diverse? Well, I think what we've seen, particularly through outsourcing to developing countries, is the decreasing prices. And that's had an impact on consumer behaviour. The fact that prices are lower because we outsource to developing countries um, that doesn't take into account the fact that these are scarce resources that are produced inexpensively, often cutting corners in order to make production price lower, often as well through the exploitation of the workers in developing countries. And we in westernised markets consume those way too frequently because of the, the perceived lower pricing. It's, it's far more accessible for us to buy them. Uh, but we don't have, we don't place much value on them and we adopt them almost a, in a disposable way, which they therefore contribute to landfill um, and pollution. So that would be the kind of basic premise of what makes our society unsustainable. And I, in particularly through my research, would look at that through a fashion lens where we've, you know, we have this problem with the fast fashion business model which has inexpensive pricing and we buy way too much of it and then and then chuck it out. And of course, we can't really wait it for much longer because the quality is so poor. So then how do we change people's mindsets? How do we change these markets and these economies? We need to think about the true cost of production, both for the people who are involved with it and the scarce resources and all parts of supply chain management and, and the emissions you know, the energy use and, and the way that that moves around the world and, and then becomes available to us in, in Western markets. If, if, it, if that were reflected in terms of the true cost, then we would be paying much more for our commodities. But the fact, because the prices have been reducing, that has meant that our willingness to pay as consumers has also reduced. Mm. And in the current market, consumers are, their threshold has reduced. So their willingness to pay more has moved, that, that kind of shift in what they're willing to pay has moved. And so that's a very different barrier to break. That's, that's going to be really quite complicated to get consumers to think about the true cost. And also the fact is that those governments in developing countries don't want to 
impact on their prosperity for economic development. So they're also going to be reluctant to levy out the prices that re would reflect the true cost. And we've seen at COP26, the kind of complexities about asking governments to implement sustainability measures. So the way that the market is currently run, it's about asking consumers to be more mindful of their consumption. And that, that's done through nudges and educating consumers. But really what we need is to see disruptive models that are coming through that in, in a way create new tenants of value that would be more appealing to consumers. And we're starting to see, we're starting to see bits of that coming through within the market, but it's very small scale. It's, it's mainly smaller businesses independently owned that are addressing those issues as opposed to the big multinational retailers. Why is that the case? Why is it smaller labels then that are addressing these issues and not some of the more household needs? I would guess it's because they don't want to impact on their opportunity for profit and also market share as well. Again, going back to the fashion industry, because it is such a competitive industry, it's very, the, the barriers of entry to new businesses are very high. And therefore, and, and those big multinational retailers are competing mainly on price and speed to market as well. And so to compromise that is a, would be quite risky for those businesses. We've seen a few of them starting to dip their toe in the water of sustainability in such a way to create new tenants of value, but that overall doesn't impact on the huge mechanism of their, the way that their business operates. And I think it's more easier for smaller business to consider supply chain management um, and to have greater control over that and to provide transparency of what production involves as it is for those bigger organizations, particularly when they're so concerned about production pricing I mean, often, particularly with the fashion industry, they have no idea who's producing their clothes, which factories are used and, and what the conditions are like in those factories. And time again, it's been evident when there's been media campaigns about levels of exploitation within supply chain management that they haven't been able to identify which factory produced that batch of clothing. We hear about terms like sustainable fashion, sustainable food, but I had never, until I spoke to you beforehand, before we started recording this podcast, I had never heard of the term sustainable marketing before. What is sustainable marketing? It's a way in which marketing can address concerns around sustainability and use it in such a way to create new tenants of value. So if we were to think about the premise of sustainability is about making sure that we've got enough resources for current market stru structures, but also projecting into the future and making sure that future generations also have access to those incredibly important resources that are required for our, our food supply chains, energy, and, and so forth, in such a way that it doesn't damage the planetary ecosystems. Marketing would then be adopting a, a similar position. Um, and in fact, Philip Kotler, who in marketing terms is a really big name, he has adapted the definition of sustainability that came out of the Brundtland Report. And he says that the concept of sustainable marketing holds that an organisation should meet the needs of present consumers without compromising the ability of future generations to fulfil their own consumption needs. And in that way, it's about marketers being involved in understanding the ways in which products and services impact upon sustainability and the way that that can therefore be adapted 
to create new ways of sustainability that can address perceptions of consumer value. And so examples of that might be, say, for example, um, sometimes polyester materials are made from recycled plastic bottles. So in a sense, that's responsive to the sustainability agenda, and that can be marketed in such a way that encourages consumers to buy it for its novelty. What's the public's reaction and perception of sustainable marketing? Well, I think that some businesses do it really well. Um, you know, so Patagonia would be an, an yeah, excellent example. It, a, it, it seems genuine in its approach. It's honest in its marketing that, you know, for example, that they, they marketed a jacket and said, this will be the only jacket you ever need. And that ties into themes around forever wardrobes, which we're starting to see in consumer data. But often I think that businesses, when they're not authentic, that falls into consumers' perceptions of what would be greenwash, that they're just trying to jump on the bandwagon of sustainability because it's a, such a topical issue um, and use it in a way that's inauthentically trying to get consumers to buy into the concept. Yeah, that was something I was going to ask you about, greenwashing and wokewashing, these terms. Again, I had never heard of them. I'd heard of greenwashing, hadn't heard of wokewashing. But can you expand a wee bit more what we mean by those two terms? Well, it's when businesses try to pretend that the business is operating at a sustainable level, when in fact that can be critiqued. And an example of that would be H&M, where they have their conscious collection, clothes made from, say, organic cotton. But that really doesn't take into account all the other collections they have. I think they've got overall around 13 women's wear collections. So in contrast, the conscious collection is really small. It's often very basic garments. It's not fashion-led garments. And H&M also encourage consumers to take back unwanted clothing to the store. We don't know what happens to it. We, we don't know where it therefore goes. And then they give consumers a voucher to buy more fashion. So they're just buying in. They're just encouraging that fast fashion business model to um, accelerate in terms of production and consumption. So that's using sustainability as a way to appeal to consumers, but it doesn't really address any of the issues. And, and well, we saw the Greenwash March at COP26 last week. And I think in, increasingly consumers are becoming quite concerned that, that um, this is a, a tactic that businesses are approaching rather than address the real issues of sustainability. In terms of woke washing, Aline, I think one of the examples you used of a company who are woke washing is Lynx. Can you tell us about that example and how that ties in with woke washing? Yeah, so the idea of the, the, the wokeness is being awoken to the issues around wider society, and that includes diversity, and equality, um, often linked with, you know, gender would be an example, where, where the businesses seem to be addressing those issues, um, but often they would do that in, in a rather superficial way. And, and Lynx is a good example of that because they had the marketing focused for such a long time around men using the product in order to attract women, which falls under the a patriarchal hierarchy system within society. And, and could be reflected as toxic masculinity. And then suddenly they did this kind of reverse in direction and started to market in such a way that was addressing male mental health. And whilst that's a really great issue to address, there was an inconsistency between their previous marketing and this current marketing with no explanation as to, to why that might be. And so that would be considered as woke washing. How do companies then, like Lynx, for example, since we're talking about them, how do they change the way they market themselves? How do they go from use Lynx, 
get babes to where you can have honest discussions about people's mental health? How do you do that in such a way so it's not just like a radical and authentic gear change? It's an important point because obviously it is an important issue, particularly when you think about the rise in mental health, particularly after COVID in, in the last couple of years. Um, but also males' mental health had been um, something that was of concern for a number of years when we think about the rise in male suicide as well. But the, and those assumptions around sexuality and masculinity and femininity are, are important issues to address. And also marketing plays a role in creating those notions of what constitutes femininity and masculinity and therefore has a role to play in addressing the issues within wider society. I think brands have to be more authentic and they have to look inward before they can express that out, outwardly. And we see it often in terms of woke washing, in terms of gender, that whilst brands might illustrate through their marketing that they support gender equality, that's perhaps not representative of, say, their board of directors. And so they really need to look at the, the whole mechanisms of the organisation and address those in a, a kind of transparent and authentic way in order to present to consumers that they are thinking through the whole of the process rather than just trying to address one aspect of it through marketing, which is really all about consumption. But let's talk about the genesis of new perspectives and critical thinking in consumer society. Where did the idea come around to write the book? Actually, the book came from my teaching. Um, I teach a fourth year module which was called New Perspectives, but then, then I changed it to be the, the same as the title of the book, uh, New Perspectives in Critical Marketing and Consumer Society. And, and when I took on the module, it didn't seem to address what I saw around me in terms of what was new in, in terms of marketing, those new issues around sustainability and this idea of wokeness. And so in revising the module and the module content, I realized that there was no supporting textbook that, that could support the module. And although we would expect students to engage with uh, journal articles and new research that was coming out at the time, students also like to have something a bit more solid that they can go back to. So the idea for the book came from my teaching and in order to support my students, but also I recognise that because those issues were within wider society and it also to get published in a journal can take a couple of years. So often the journals weren't reflecting this, you know, for example, this idea of wokeness within society. Mm -hmm. I thought that it would be useful to have a book that helped other students as well um, and was more reflective of what was actually happening. And you collaborated with other members in the department to write the book. Can you tell me about that process? Yeah, so I mean, we're luckily at GCU, we're um, all working towards the common good or the common wheel. And a lot of our teaching is underpinned by the sustainable development goals. So a lot of their research is also looking at a number of those issues around sustainability um, and wokeness as well. And just because we have a, a strong department in terms of fashion and retailing and marketing, uh, as well as tourism and events, there was a you know a lot going on and it's unfortunate that we don't always have the time to sit and listen to what one another is um, undertaking in terms of research so it was good for me as well to get a better understanding of what they were teaching and of course we cr cross and um, collaborate in terms of teaching anyway and um, I would go in and teach on other programs and I invite my colleagues to come in and speak to my students about the research that they're doing 
ultimately, as marketing students, they may wish to specialise in a particular area of, say, fashion or food or, or retailing, sports, um, events and tourism. So it's good for them to get an, a, a breadth of understanding about how that manifests. What was the process of actually writing the book, the physical process of putting all these words together? Well, actually, that was really interesting. And as I say, because I'd written the module, I had a, a bank of materials from which I could draw on. And because I'm also active in research, it means that I'm always looking out for new publications that relate to my field. So it was really nice to sit down and put it together in some kind of structure. And it made me really think about what it was, what the core message was that I wanted to communicate. So for example, because a lot of my research focuses on fashion, and a lot of our students, when they were writing about disruption within the fashion industry, they would refer to the fast fashion business model as disrupting normal fashion markets. But actually, that's been embedded now for a, you know, a good decade or more. And so trying to get the students to think beyond this dominant, dominant social paradigm of us going to the high street and buying fast fashion, what I wanted to illuminate upon was there are new ways in which we can access fashion. And so developing new environmental paradigms through that. So thinking through the way that the book was structured really helped me to get a better understanding of what it was I wanted to communicate and what research already existed that supported this communication and pull it all together in a succinct way that the students could therefore understand and using lots of examples as well particularly Scottish examples. Oh, can you give us some of those examples? Well, there's the Reparel um, Exchange in Glasgow. Um, we also work really closely with Sustainable Fashion Scotland. Um, one of our alumni was one of the founding members of that. Um, and so we work with them to get a better understanding of those new innovative uh, sustainable business models for the fashion industry within Scotland. Um, and also we've done some work with the Scottish Design Exchange and there are a number of upcycling opportunities um, as well, where there are workshops where people can learn how to upcycle their current clothing. There are clothing swaps as well. Um, and, and some, for example, in, in Edinburgh, there's the upcycling shop and um, there are tool libraries um, and clothing libraries kind of springing up too. So, so these are all good examples. And of course, we hope to instigate an entrepreneurial mindset in our students because I would argue that marketing is not where someone comes in at the end and therefore designs a campaign for selling really marketing should be integrated right from the beginning yeah. from the concept development to better understand where the tenants of value can be created and communicated to consumers and and you know one aspect of that is innovation and entrepreneurship we're very lucky that almost every year, David Gluckman, who was the inventor of Bailey's, right. comes to speak to our students, yeah, and, and to promote his book as well. So, and he is just an amazing character. And he talks a lot about those new, innovative, sustainable businesses that are springing up around the world because those people contact him looking for advice. I imagine sustainability is something that is very important to your students. Increasingly so. You know, this last year in particular, I was really surprised, pleasantly so, at the number of dissertations that addressed aspects of sustainability and climate change. I've also done some research with children in, in primary schools to try and get a better understanding of how they understand sustainability and also how they understand 
their responsibility to be sustainable. And so I think through the eco-school movement, which most primary schools in Scotland seem to be part of, children are well-versed in concepts of sustainability from a very young age. Sustainability has perhaps never been closer to the public's consciousness it is now, especially in the wake of COP26, which was held in Glasgow. But I know, Elaine, that you've had a long-standing passion for sustainability. Where did that come from? I was quite late in doing my undergrad degree, and so I graduated from my undergrad in 2008, by which point I had three children, and so had started to think about, you know, our practice in the home, um, and also the wider implications for society. But quite early on in the beginning of my PhD, I came across images of the ROC in Uzbekistan, which was the second biggest inward lake um, in the world. Um, and Uzbekistan is the second biggest cotton producer in the world as well. And what they had done to uh, increase their cotton crops was they had started to siphon water off the ROC because cotton is a very uh, water intensive crop mm -hmm. to grow it. And just the observation of how that sea had diminished in such a short space of time and getting a better understanding of the impact of that on the people for their livelihoods that, that, that were mainly in the fishing trade, that many species to that area had become extinct. There'd also been weather pattern changes increasing in terms of windstorms which had an impact on the people's health um, and they'd started to have increasing levels of respiratory disease and cancer. The visualization of that, seeing that in front of me had such a huge shock that I, you know, realized that if that was to happen on a global scale, then, you know, what does that say about the future of humanity? So it had a huge impact on me and, and it, I just feel it's really important work for us to address particularly in terms of the common good and the sustainable development goals. Do you think this is something that the public are really beginning to embrace as well, sustainability? I do. I, I think that they're increasingly concerned. I think there is a lot of mixed messages out there in terms of the success often of greenwash. But whilst I think consumers are very sceptical, I don't think that they fully understand all the, the wider issues. I also think that in our current market structure, when we buy things, it's we're seeking value from a very consumer-led perspective. I think that, that we don't often understand, you know, in terms of in time and space, we don't understand what's happening in, in other geographical spaces where climate change has impacted more quickly than it has in, in Western worlds. And also I think that we probably think about sustainability as a future objective when we're buying something. So I might not be sustainable in this particular consumer behavior but I, you know in the future we I see that a lot in sustainable fashion young people say I can't afford to buy sustainable fashion right now so I'm going to buy fast fashion but when I'm older and I've got more money I will buy sustainable fashion then but the fact is that you know our thresholds for consumption have reduced and I don't think you know given the given people's life stages I think when you're you know in your early 20s and you're a student you maybe do think that you'll have more money when you're older but by that point you'll probably have a mortgage and children sucking your salary dry and so I, I think that we're, we're always saying in the future I'm going to be better but maybe not right now. 
Now, just before COP26, you attended the Fashion Series Conference in Antwerp. The topic was, can fashion save the world? And you also presented at the online Global Fashion Conference. So very busy time for yourself. But you tell me about your experiences at both of those events. Well, it was really great. It was, it's always really great to hear the variety of research that's going on around fashion. Um, and I think fashion is quite a particular topic of interest because whilst we've got sustainability in one corner of our minds, we're also very driven by the way that we present to, to wider society. So there's this inner conflict, I think, happening quite a lot. So it was, it was interesting to hear about that. It was also interesting to connect with other people and to hear about the work that they are doing. I think my biggest takeaway from the conference at Antwerp is that fast fashion really doesn't have anything to do with fashion. Uh, there were designers talking about the design process at the conference. Uh, and when you think about the kind of work that comes from cat shows, uh, sorry, catwalk shows, um, and the way that there's that creative input to fashion, we don't see that on the high street. It's all about get it out quickly, sell it as cheap as possible. And a lot of style is homogenized. There's not much differentiation between the different brands. And I would argue that that's more about fads than fashion. And um, there, there's no kind of creative input. So it was nice to connect with people and to get a bit, you know, a better understanding of what that process is. And the importance of fashion as a expression of creativity and individualism rather than a uniformity across the board that really is just underpinned by capitalistic markets. And you also took the train to Antwerp as well. I did, yeah. Um, I'd taken a pledge through DCU to reduce my carbon emissions. So I thought I would take the train to Antwerp. In terms of holidays, I've a few times taken train journeys um, from Edinburgh. One time we did Edinburgh to London, to Paris, Madrid, and then on to Lisbon and, and the sleeper train in between those countries in Europe. And it was just such a great experience. Uh, so I was really looking forward to being alone in the train with, um, <laughs> with my thoughts and actually productive in terms of pulling together work. And speaking of work, you're also in the process of developing another book that's set to be published next year. You, you talked about me about that. Yes. So whilst um, the original New Perspectives in Critical Marketing Consumer Society looked at more broader market systems and aspects of sustainability and wokeness, our new books focusing on those same themes, but with a specific fashion focus. So we are collaborating, myself and my co-editors, Julie McCall and Catherine Canning, we are collaborating with people in GCU in Glasgow also in London and our New York campuses as well. And we're also uh, working with people from the London College of Fashion and Manchester, Manchester Met University. So if people want to read new perspectives in critical marketing and consumer society, where can they get it? Get a plug in for it now. Yeah, so it's, it's published by Emerald. So it's available on the Emerald site. I'm not going to plug Amazon because <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's there but it doesn't really fit with my whole ethos of uh, sustainability and not exploitation. So that's uh, brilliant to talk to you Elaine and best of luck with the book. Always a big success and good luck with the book that's coming out next year. Thank you so much. I would also like to thank everyone for listening to this episode and I hope to see you again next week when we'll be in conversation with another member of the GCU community. In the meantime, please consider subscribing to this podcast. You'll find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and everywhere else so there's no excuse. And also please leave us a review if you get the chance. 
Until next time, I've been Craig Telfer and this has been the Common Good Podcast. Mm-hmm.